If you would be willing to open your Bibles and turn to the book of Acts, the second chapter. Uh, This is where Pastor Matt will be preaching today. He will primarily be focusing on the last handful of verses. Uh, That's verses 36 through 41. But just for a little context and to kind of set the mood with what's going on uh, in this passage that Matt's going to be talking about, uh, we're going to read the entirety of Acts chapter 2. So, hear now God's holy word. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Serene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews, and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the death of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with the joy in your presence. 
Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him and on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke He spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. So I, uh, I moved around a few different times when I was a younger man, and uh, about the time I, I arrived in the town of Indianola, uh, for the next kind of number of years, I made just some of this, some very seriously poor choices, and in a short amount of time, I had, I had become a thief. I was lying regularly to my friends and my family. Both my mind and my mouth were just extremely foul. And one particular incident um, occurred when I was playing with a friend and we were doing something stupid outside and ended up breaking a window. And uh, he and I got in a fight. And when he left, um, I spent the next couple of weeks kind of lying to my family about his character, lying to people at school about his character, just to cover my backside, and it destroyed a friendship. It progressed a bad character for a significant time period. I look back on kind of those weeks, and I just wince at the person I was and what I was doing. And like in my brain, like, you know, you, you replay, like, I wish I could just have it one gigantic do-over. All right, can I hit the reset button and do that day over? Uh, can I get a mulligan? And so just kind of wondering, I mean, do you look at some aspect of your life or maybe the totality of your life and just say, can I have a do-over? Can I have a mulligan? Um, What's interesting, the passage we find in Acts chapter 2 is a group of people wanting a gigantic do-over. I mean, a colossal do-over. I guess the question this morning and how it relates to baptism is, is there, is there hope for that? Do we get a do-over? Is there a reset button? What does that look like for us? Let me pray, and we'll dig into this text. Father in heaven, thankful for your, for your grace and the newness of, your, newness of life promised 
to us through the work of Jesus Christ and then symbolized in baptism. Would you give us grace to understand the, the profundity of the deep, deep love of Jesus and his work for us and the great privilege it is now to be a part of his covenant family marked by baptism. In Jesus' name, amen. So those of you who are here for us for the first time or haven't been back for a few weeks, I just want to remind you we're in a sermon series on the marks of the church. What, is, what are the marks of a true church? And uh, some of the great teaching that came out of the Protestant Reformation is that, th- that the three marks of a true church is a church that rightly preaches the doctrine of Jesus Christ and Him crucified, the gospel, then rightly practices those things of the Lord's Supper and baptism. And then the third mark is a church that practices meaningful membership or, or the discipline of the church to be walking faithfully as the covenant people of God. I introduced uh, the idea of uh, baptism and the Lord's Supper as being signs and seals last week. Let me just remind you of these definitions as we begin this morning. A sign is a representation of something that is real. A sign is a representation of something that is real. So we believe that baptism symbolizes something that is real. Likewise, we also believe that it is a seal. And a seal is an image stamped on or marked onto an everyday object that gives it value. So when you stamp an image on a dime, on the front and the back, it gives it value when before it was just a metal. Much the same way, God has chosen through the water, which itself is it's not, it's not magical, it's not salvific in and of itself, but he marks on the waters of baptism something that gives it value. It marks out who his people are. And I thought it was interesting, in studies this week, I came across a quote by a guy named William Hendrickson, who taught a number of years at Calvin College, and he gives this definition of baptism, which I think is so marvelous. He says this, it, baptism, is accordingly a sign and seal of union with Christ, of entrance into his covenant, and of incorporation into Christ's body, the church. And unbeknownst to William Hendrickson, those are the three sermons I'm doing on baptism. Last week, we talked about being a sign and seal of our union with Christ. This week, we're going to talk about being a covenant sign. And next week, we're going to talk about being the incorporation of Christ's body. Thank you, William Hendrickson. This text in Acts 2 is interesting. I think uh, scholars have uh, dated it. I think one of the best dating of what's happening in Acts chapter 2 is May 28th. 30 A.D. So it's either 30 A.D. or 33 A.D. I'm, I'm inclined to go with the earlier date. So this is May 28th, 30 A.D. This is seven weeks after the weekend of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus' resurrection probably occurring on April 7th, 30 A.D. And what I want you to realize is that at the death of Jesus Christ, it was this major festival known as Passover. And faithful Jews, uh, practitioners of the, of the Jewish faith, would have come to Jerusalem. Seven weeks later, there's another major festival. It's called Pentecost. And the faithful Jews from across the land, they would come to Jerusalem. There is a large proportion of people in Jerusalem on May 28th that would have been there April 7th. And what has happened is over those time, and by the time you get to the end of Peter's sermon, as you go from a people of, who were, had a murderous rejection of Jesus 
to now a cowering conviction before Jesus. Just seven weeks before, many of the people that would be at this Pentecost were screaming, crucify him, crucify him. Jesus rose three days later, Resurrection Sunday. But his resurrection appearances for those first 40 days were primarily with those who were a part of his community. The public word of Jesus' resurrection was slowly leaking out, but it was not on the grand scale. But something happens, and it's the passage that was read to us, that moves them from previously being murderous rejectors of Jesus to now those coweringly convicted before Jesus. Let me just, I want you to get in the mind of the everyday Jewish person on May 28, 30 AD. They're there to celebrate Pentecost, which is a harvest festival. It's a celebratory festival. And all of a sudden, a stream of people are coming out of this house and they're talking all wacky-like. Bunch of different languages, bunch of different tongues, and here and there, someone uh, is saying, wait a minute, they're talking in my language about a glorious God and a resurrected Jesus. So you had people from Phrygia, which is not a cold place, it's a land, but people from Phrygia are hearing Phrygian, if that's a language, about Jesus, and he's resurrected. And then over here you had people from Crete, and you had people from all these different lands, and they're hearing in their own tongue, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Messiah, he's risen from the dead, glory to God. And some of the people, what do they say? These folks, they're trashed. They are so drunk. What is going on here? This is crazy talk. We killed that guy seven weeks ago. And then Peter stands up, and he says, it is nine in the morning. Just want you to know, people who drink all night, they're, they're, they pass out around three. Right? So these, it's nine in the morning. These guys aren't drunk. And then what he does is he has this sermon. We're only getting the synopsis. It wasn't probably 47 seconds long. But what, he, what Peter does is he walks through the Old Testament scriptures based on this amazing phenomenon of, these, of the speaking of tongues, and he says, a new day has dawned through Jesus. The first passage he quotes, he quotes from the prophet Joel, chapter 2, and he says, in these, the latter days, in these future days, the, God is going to pour down his Holy Spirit in a massive waterfall of immersion of the Holy Spirit are going to fall on all peoples, Jew and Gentile, black and white, young and old, the Holy Spirit is going to come, and there's going to be miraculous things happening, dreams and visions and prophetic and powerful speech. And it says in verse 21, and everyone in this new day, in this new time, everyone close to God, far to God, Jewish, not Jewish, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So what Peter is saying, you people who killed Jesus seven weeks ago, he is the resurrected Lord, and because he's the resurrected Lord, it means he's the one true Messiah, the one we've been longing for, and this is a new day dawning. This is the days of the blood moon, which does not mean that moons actually look red. It means the entire universe and cosmos is somehow changed because of the personal work of Jesus Christ. And to symbolize this, the Holy Spirit comes and nothing is the same ever again. And now the people are listening. 
And so he keeps going. Verse 22, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth, he was a man accredited by God. So no man does miracles like this. No man speaks such truth like this. Know that the enemies of Jesus during his ministry never denied that he was doing miraculous things. They just said it was by the work of the evil one. So his contemporaries never said Jesus couldn't do miracles. His contemporaries said Jesus did miracles by a devious hand. And Peter says, no, these were signs accrediting him to God. And the greatest miracle that shows that this man is God's man is he rises triumphantly over the dead. Three days later. And then he quotes Psalm 16. He says, this has been promised. David said, you will not let your Holy One see decay. And probably most people who read Psalm 16 at that time meant, well, one day there'll be this great future resurrection where you get new bodies and the, the Jews will be on top and the Gentiles will be on bottom. And what Peter is saying, no, 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 this was always, this, it's not like one day you get a new body, like Jesus literally couldn't stay in the grave long enough to decay. <laughs> and when he rises from the dead, he has a body that is immortal, invisible, invincible. This is the Messiah. He's greater than King David. And then he quotes Psalm 110 to say, and that's what David said too, because David said, my Lord sits at Yahweh's right hand. So David was already speaking about this coming Lord, this coming Messiah. And then, then um, Peter gets to the climax of his sermon, verse 36. Let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. The murderous rejectors now get to cowering conviction. <laughs> When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? I was just reading through the Bible this year, and I was in Psalm 110 this morning, which is what uh, Peter quotes that said that, you know, my Lord said to his Lord. But I came across Psalm 110, verse 5. And one thing that's powerful about almost any time an Old Testament reference is made, most of the Jewish people could recall the whole reference. Psalm 110, verse 5 says this, The Lord, and this is referring to the Messiah, The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. If Jesus is the Messiah, the one, and that these people crucified him and killed them, when they hear that he is the Messiah and the Lord, they have to be wondering, am I going to now be crushed in his wrath? You don't have to read much of the Old Testament to know that if you mess with Israelite kings, they come and get you. And they have, there has to be, there's some fear here. Appropriate fear. Many of you in this room have come to a place already that you have trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. But I'm guessing most of you, before you believed, you felt what it meant to be under God's wrath that you understood that you were a sinful person, you had done evil deeds, you were morally bankrupt before a holy God, you yourself realized that you had been murderously opposed to Jesus, 
that you had rejected him, you had not listened to him, you had not followed him, you had not trusted him. And when you came to understand the dignity and the worth and the glory of Jesus Christ, you felt that cowering conviction. We will never understand what Christ has done for us or who he is in his, in his real goodness until we recognize that without Christ, hell is fair. Hell is just. Hell is a good place for bad people. Jesus himself, in Matthew 25, verse 41, it's recorded him saying this, then those, he will say to those on his left, he says, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Jesus has a there's a purpose for those who reject him and don't honor him. What shall we do, they asked. What shall we do? And then Peter gives what is called the Christian promise or the, the good news. When you feel the weight of the bad news, now the next news is truly good. It's the Christian promise. And he says, this is what you need to do. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them. That's a good uh, summary of what is evangelism. How do we share Jesus Christ? We warn people and we plead with people. And he says, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. So Peter uses two terms on what would be the response to those who stand before God, stand before Jesus Christ with cowering conviction. He says, repent and be baptized. Repent and be baptized. Now, in some ways, you could say this is the same thing. Right? So repent is the inward sense of conviction and guilt, desire to turn Desire to change, desire for mercy. That's the internal action. And then the external is a physical willingness to be immersed in water as a symbol of what is going on in your heart and life. And Peter unites them. Respond to God with your whole life, internally, externally, spiritually, physically. Fully surrender yourself to Christ, hopefully. Put your hope in Him. He is our hope. And it says, when you respond this way in the name of Jesus, it says, you're forgiven of your sins. Not partially, but in, to in, in totality. Think of how that would have sounded to the people in the first century who had been crying out for Jesus' crucifixion seven weeks prior, and now they're hearing if you just believe in Christ, trust that he's the Messiah, you're forgiven. Clemency is yours. You don't have to climb 200 steps on your knees until they're bleeding for your sins to be forgiven. You don't have to 
do, you come and you recognize who Jesus is, you receive what Christ has done from you, and you are forgiven, and then given the gift of the Holy Spirit. You don't earn the Holy Spirit, you're given the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, what a, what a gift. You, you know, those of you familiar with the Old Testament, you can read in the past where God would send His Holy Spirit in unique times upon unique persons to do marvelous things. Whether it's um, I, I, one of the, the judges that were filled with the Spirit and were able to defeat enemies, or sometimes people were filled with the Spirit and they would speak prophetic words. Sometimes the Spirit would fall on special kings to lead in a certain way. But through the Messiah, through his death and his resurrection, this new day has dawned. Some people call this event in Acts 2, they call it the birthday of the church. This is, this is the church's birthday. Something new and mighty happens. The church is birthed, and the church is birthed through this sending of the Holy Spirit in unique power, so that every Christian person can now do what all of those Old Testament saints could do. You have that same spirit that moved in David and in Samson and in Hannah. That spirit now flows into a believer's life, and now you, dream dreams and visions and prophecy and mighty works of God are yours. In fact, Jesus said, I need to leave at one point. He said, I got to go. He says, when I go, I'm sending the Holy Spirit. And you know what? When the Holy Spirit comes, you're going to do greater things than me. And I think it means numerically. There'll be more miraculous things happening. Nothing more amazing than the atonement of Jesus Christ. But when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you will do the kinds of miraculous things that Christ has done in your life and in your ministry. That's what the Spirit does. One of the greatest promises about this coming age, this birthday of the church, was in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. Let me read to you these verses. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. He says, the days are coming, declares the Lord. So this is a prophet around 600 B.C. prophesying something that's happening now at Pentecost. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. Verse 33, this is the covenant I'm going to make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I'm going to put my law in their minds. I'm going to write it on their hearts. This is done through the Spirit of God. I will be their God. They will be my people no longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Peter is saying to the first century crowd and now to us, this day has dawned. These days are here. You can know God intimately, powerfully when you trust Him. Repent and be baptized. And then there's this little line in verse 40. It says, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Now one thing I want you to know is 
when a person does repent, does become a follower of Jesus Christ, then symbolizes that through baptism, one of the statements it is making is, I am no longer a part of a certain group of people. I'm a part of a new group of people. So when he says, save yourselves from this corrupt generation, he's not saying that, you know, 30 AD was like the worst generation ever, right? I mean, most old people would say we're that now, right? But it's this, it, what, what, what repenting, and ba- repenting and then marking that with baptism is it's saying, I want to be a part of the people of God. I'm leaving the world and all of its trappings and all of its fake and false promises, all of the false substitute gods. I want to be saved from that. And I want to be in God's family. I want to be a part of His church. I want to be under this new covenant relationship with God. So Peter is pleading with them, come out from the world and be identified in the family of God through faith, repentance, and baptism. A couple of questions that I think is important to kind of maybe work through for a few minutes on, you know, this text in particular. One of the questions is, for whom is baptism? It's a pretty common question in church history. For whom is baptism? Who is this for? Well, just looking at the text itself, uh, it would say one of the requirements to be baptized is to be able to repent. So to consciously choose to turn from your sin and to consciously agree with uh, the teachings of who Jesus Christ is. Uh, Notice also in verse 39, it says this promise is for you and your children. So some people would say, well, this promise of new life is for you and your children. So children maybe be my infants, so maybe we should get them baptized. But I think it's important to remember what it says all the way back in verse 21. The promise of the Holy Spirit, verse 21, is for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. And so the idea of who, for whom is baptism, it's for those who can call on the name of the Lord and for those who have repented. Many of you know that uh, some of my favorite people in church history are St. Augustine, John Calvin, John Wesley, these are all men who practiced and preached infant baptism. These are men to whom I am unworthy to untie their sandals. And so I say with fear and trepidation, I think they're wrong. I think we need to wait till someone comes to an understanding of who Jesus Christ is. And yet because godly men have held this idea before, I want to hold my view with conviction and also with humility. Interesting, in history, there was already people being baptized as infants as early as 200 A.D. There was a church father by the name of Tertullian who disagreed with this practice in 200 A.D., and he wrote this, he said, referring to those who want to receive baptism, he says, let them come then while they grow up. While they learn, while they are taught to whom to come, let them become Christians, which means let them be marked as Christians through baptism, when they will be able to know Christ. And then interesting, a 20th century scholar by the name of Karl Barth, he wrote this about baptism, which I think is a charitable middle position. He says, baptism, without the willingness and readiness to Readiness of the baptized is true, effectual, and effective baptism, but it is not correct. It is not done in obedience. It is not administered according to proper order, and therefore it is, necessary, it is necessarily a clouded 
baptism. I don't know if you catch that charitable position. He's showing grace that people who do baptize their babies at a young age, it's still a, a mark of faith. It's parents saying, I pray my child would know God. That has a power to it. There's an effectiveness to it. Uh, I was baptized as an infant. I want to thank my parents for doing that. I was later chose to profess baptism as, as, a, as an 18-year-old young man. But I think that this, I just, this is one thing some of you guys know have been through the membership class. The, the denomination we're a part of, the Evangelical Free Church of America, there are churches in our denomination that, still bap, that some baptize infants today, and as a denomination we've chosen not to make this a, a divided issue. Uh, Cornerstone Church, as a church, we uh, both teach and practice the baptism of those who have professed faith, and yet there's still going to be grace. There's still going to be grace. Another question that I thought was really helpful that came out of a small group is, well, when does the Holy Spirit come? Because this kind of makes it sound like if I have to repent and be baptized, and then I get the Holy Spirit. And so some people are like wondering, well, I haven't been baptized, so do I not have the Holy Spirit? I'd like to answer this two ways, both the theological answer and then the experiential answer. I do think theologically, uh, first, uh, first Corinthians 12, 13, you can write this down. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, No one can, can confess Jesus as Lord except by the Spirit. No one can confess Jesus Christ as Lord except by the Spirit. And so I think what Paul is saying, no person will rightly know who Jesus Christ is and profess him as Lord unless the Spirit of God has already worked on them. In a very similar way, 1 John 5, 1 says, No one will believe in the Christ unless they are born of God. And so I think, I think theologically, the work of God, uh, which the theological term is the regenerating work of God, the making alive of a person, has to precede faith because dead people can't believe, right? We're spiritually dead. Dead people can't believe. So God has to work on us, make us alive, and then we can trust Christ. And so the Spirit has to come before you can believe. But let me tell you, let me answer it now experientially. Experientially. Some people in their own experience, will say, I was so moved by God, he came upon me, really convicted me, and then I believed in Jesus. They'll have a profound experience, spiritual experience, and then they believe. So they'll be like, well, see, it happened. Well, then there's other people that will say, well, the moment, the moment I believed in Jesus, like I was like goosebumps and glitter, and it was whoa. There's some people, though, it's on the day of their baptism, maybe a few months or a year later, They'll, they'll say, when I went in those waters and I came out, I came alive to God. Yeah, I believed before, but I felt God moved mightily. And then there's other people, four, five, ten years after being a professing Christian, will have such a profound work of God in their heart that they'll say, did I just get the Holy Spirit? Um, we need to build our theology on the doctrine but know that our experiences of the Holy Spirit will be different. I would encourage us to give grace on our experience, but also celebrate that God shows up in different ways. And God, my prayer for some of you who've been Christians for 30 years is you have such a work of the Holy Spirit right now that you look back and you wonder, was I even a Christian before? I love God so much more. I trust him so much more purely. And yet theologically know that the Holy Spirit is drawing people to God so that they can believe and trust in him. And that when though, if you're professing Christ, it's not because you're brilliant, it's because God is gracious. 
If you're professing Christ, it's because the Holy Spirit has worked in you to open your eyes that were once blinded by the enemy. And so the glory of whether you believe or not is through God's work. And how you experience them, it's going to be myriad. It's going to be different. I think we need to just celebrate that God shows up in so many different ways. Let me just talk a little bit then about how this maybe uh, practically applies for us. I, I want to talk a little bit just particularly to those who are, are members of this church. And if you're a member of another church, I think this applies to you. I think it's very important as a church that we administer baptism carefully. This is the sign of the new covenant. This is the sign of the filling of the Holy Spirit and the salvation of a human person which means we should carefully wait to see that someone knows Christ and is professing him before we baptize them. We don't just throw it out willy-nilly. This is a serious sign. It'd be like we don't throw out wedding rings and wedding certificates willy-nilly because it's serious. Well, this is even more significant. And so we want to make sure people know what baptism is and what it represents and to make sure that they've trusted in Christ. Christ saves, baptism doesn't. And so sometimes if we don't take the time of pointing people to Christ, they'll put their hope in the representation or the sign and not the actual Savior, the real. So let's, let's use this sign to affirm and confirm what God has done, but let's also be careful to not just hold it lightly. Similarly, uh, I want to encourage those of you who have been baptized is to, and it's kind of the same application from last week, ponder early and often this new covenant that you have through Jesus Christ symbolized by baptism. You, through the Holy Spirit, can know God as intimately as King David. When you, if you read through the Psalms and you hear this cry of the heart to know God, you can know God that intimately. You can know him personally. And, and, and kind of uniquely, too, like, you know, my wife, I know her love in a way that no one else knows. I mean, her parents know her love in a certain way. There's a side of which you will have an experience with God that you will know is true, it is real, it is legitimate, it is not fake, but you're also going to have a tough time putting it into words. Because I can't put the words, can't put words to the love that my wife and I share. In fact, once you start trying to put words to it, it like kind of Diffuse, it loses its power. And so know that you have access to the living God through the Holy Spirit based on the finished work of Jesus Christ. And the only entrance requirement is repentance. Coming back to God. Experiencing Him in power. You know, I asked at the beginning, you know, do any of you want to, you know, a do-over or a mulligan, or a reset. Here's the good news of what it means to become a Christian. It's not just a reset. It's not just a do-over. When you come to Christ, all of your past sins, and your future ones, totally forgiven. And when you start over, you start over with the Spirit of God in your life. It's not restart, go try harder. It's restart now with the Holy Spirit of God in your life. And so if you said something horrific this week to a coworker or a spouse or a child, 
when you reset, ask for God's forgiveness, ask for the forgiveness of your child, you don't start over the next day in your strength. You start over the next day with the power of God in your life. You can live a new life of love and mercy and goodness. So one of the practices I just want to encourage you this week, and it's what Jesus says, I think it's in Luke 13. Someone correct me. Um, he says, ask and you'll receive. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be open to you. For everyone who seeks, finds. Everyone who knocks, the door's open. Uh, and then he says, you know, fathers love to good, give good gifts to their children. And so then he says, ask for the Holy Spirit. Ask for the Holy Spirit. If you're a Christian, it's asking, for, um, basically surrendering more of your life to God to come and change you. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, you may be asking the Holy Spirit, come and convict me, come and show me the truth of who Jesus Christ is and who I am. But I'd encourage you this week, every morning, and then throughout the day, Lord, would you give me the Holy Spirit? Let me be aware of his presence and his power. It's not because I think the, the Spirit leaks or he like sneaks out of your soul. It's not true. He's there. But are you aware of his presence? And are you giving him access and reign of your life? The Father loves to give you good gifts. Ask for the Holy Spirit. Father in heaven, I'm thankful that um, I can look back on my baptism and I can remember going into the water. I can remember coming out, realizing that this is, this is the testimony of what Christ did when I believed, that I went from death to life. And when I came alive, I was filled with the Spirit of God. The Spirit gives life to mortal bodies. The presence of the Spirit says, I am a part of the new covenant people of God. It's not like the old covenant that was external, marked by people's failure time and time again. This is a new covenant, and it cuts to the heart, it changes us, our minds are renewed, our hearts are changed. The Spirit is given access and reign over our lives. And so, Holy Spirit, come into my life. Come into our lives. Move mightily as you did on the day of Pentecost in 30 AD. Move mightily today. Send your Holy Spirit down in power. The Holy Spirit would do so much transformation and change in our life that people would say, what is up with these people? Are they drunk? And then we can say, fellow Americans, Jesus Christ is Lord and Messiah. Amen.